Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. This is The Future Is, a mini-series all about Columbia alumni who are the leaders of today and creators of tomorrow. I'm your host, Shanna Crumley, the CAA Digital Initiatives Intern and a current graduate student in International Affairs at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs. As a graduate student at Columbia, I'm always keeping an eye out for great role models and stories that I can relate to as I start my career. As a woman especially, I'm always looking for women whose experiences can help me navigate those nuances of modern womanhood and work life. For this mini-series, I had the chance to look for women who are innovators, creating the future in a variety of fields like climate change, computer science, journalism. I found women doing cool things, and then I asked them about their work, their career trajectories, their thoughts on their fields, and what inspires them. And I promised them two things. Number one, I will not ask podcast guests what they're wearing. And number two, I will ask them about their ideas, opinions, jobs, plans, and what makes them tick. You know, I really did come along at a, at, um, a very pivotal moment in American history and in uh, changes for women and changes for people of color. For our first episode, we're honored to feature Columbia University trustee Alilia Bundles, a veteran journalist and author and graduate of the Columbia Journalism School. Alilia spent over 30 years as a producer and executive for NBC News and ABC News. She's currently writing her fifth book and serves as the chairman of the board of the National Archives Foundation and as the president of her family's historical archives. She joined us recently for a telephone call from Washington, D.C. Alilia Bundles' story is one of timing and changing tides. Alilia comes from a long line of successful, well-known women, including one of the first African-American self-made millionaires and a Harlem Renaissance darling. But rather than going to the family business, Alilia took her own path. She discovered her calling as a writer at the ripe old age of eight in 1960, during an era of big changes. I entered college in 1970, um, and... That was the you know during that those four years when I was in school Roe Ro versus uh, versus mm-hmm. Wade happened affirmative action happened women began to sue the major news outlets there were all of these things that that said the the society is changing and there needs to be a response we cannot hold back half the population and. Um, white men will not forever and always be the only people who have positions of power. Alilia Bundles would not be deterred by these challenges in the industry. Turns out Alilia was always a little tenacious. Her habit of dreaming bigger than what society thought was possible began way back in elementary school. I wrote a story when I was in third grade imagining myself going to the moon. And so this would have (laughs) been about 1960, before you know America had gone to the moon i maybe maybe Sputnik had happened, but i had I wrote a story about um imagining myself going to the moon, and one of my mother's friends, who was a, a teacher, read the story and sent it to a children's magazine and it was published. so I had a byline at eight years old <laughs> that's all it took for little Alelia to be hooked on writing in seventh grade. Another teacher encouraged her to try out for the school newspaper. There, the faculty advisor became a mentor to Ilelia. And he was kind of a crusty old guy, loved newspapers, and he really ran a tight ship. And we had a, an award-winning junior high school newspaper. We won national awards, and he really insisted on high standards. And I worked for the newspaper, learned the 
the you know the five W's, the basics of journalism. I was the editor of the paper my in ninth grade. So really, by seventh grade, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Lily went on to be the editor of that paper in ninth grade, and again in high school. But when she got to college at Harvard, she found the newspaper environment less appealing, especially at Harvard's student paper, The Crimson. I didn't really, I wasn't attracted to The Crimson because it just seemed like a place that was not a very welcoming atmosphere for a young African-American woman. But instead, I worked for the, I went to work for the radio station as a DJ in jazz. True to form, Alelia found another route to journalism. Two law students who did a weekly radio show for Alelia introduced her to a local TV producer. Topper Carruth was executive producer of a show at WGBH in Boston called uh, Say Brother. It was one of the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, black public affairs shows, and I interned at that show. And I now had a radio and a TV credential, <laughs> and so that led me to a year working at DuPont, and I produced the the in-house TV show, and then I came to Columbia. While Alelia was making headway in her journalism education, however, the outside world was still catching up. When I was graduating from Columbia in journalism, Women had sued Newsweek and um, NBC, and and it, you know it was a very interesting time because there were so many capable women up to that point. Women who you know, young smart women who were hired were hired as researchers, and they stayed researchers <laughs> for years. And young smart men who were hired were hired as desk assistants and associate producers, and then they were on the path to becoming producers. What the lawsuit did was to say these same people who have these, you know, men and women who have the same brains, the same credentials, should all be on the producer path. And that's Mm -hmm. the path that I uh, was able to be on, which opened the door for me to be considered for NBC's Associates Program, which was kind of an entry-level producer management training program that focused on opportunities for women and people of color. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I was right there when those opportunities were, you know, first made available. Since she was one of the first women on this track, there weren't a lot of other women around to serve as mentors and as role models. When unionization led NBC to cut employees, however, this actually worked to her advantage. Because I was in the Associates Management Training Program, and, you know, one of the few women and one of the few people of color, they, they've they tried to figure out a way for me to stay employed. And the way that I mm-hmm. stayed employed was to be reassigned to the Houston Bureau, mm-hmm. which I did not want to do because I did not want to leave New York because I'm a girl who grew up in Indiana. I wanted to be in New York, not someplace that I'd never been and wasn't familiar with. But it was the best thing that could have happened to me during at that phase in my career. I was assigned to a really small bureau in Houston and and they were they would describe themselves as a little bureau on the prairie. They were so welcoming to me, so wonderful to me and treated me like family and mentored me. And they knew I was very inexperienced, but they embraced me and taught me what I needed to know. And if I'd stayed in New York, I probably would not have had that kind of mentoring. Alelia strengthened her journalism skills under their mentorship. But when the senior leadership in Houston changed, so did her luck. Then I had the other end of the spectrum, 
they were all on their on you know ascending in their careers, and they all about two years after I got there, they all were reassigned to other places. And I and a new bureau chief came in who was, and and this is kind of a classic um, situation. He was kind of a very mediocre white guy who had been propped up by you know more uh, experienced and more talented white colleagues. He'd started as a as a film editor and had been promoted to bureau chief in Chicago, and he had really failed at a couple of major stories. And they wanted to salvage his career, and so they assigned him to a smaller bureau, and they assigned him to Houston. And he also mm-hmm. was replaced by the first black woman bureau chief in Chicago, you know, in the for the network. Uh, mm-hmm. So he, so when he saw me, he was not happy. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just classic. You sort of can't make this stuff up. So he got there. I was, uh, you know, his producer. I'm sure, and I, you know, and I still was learning my job. I was competent at what I was doing, but he really, he resented having been replaced by another black woman. You know, perhaps he wouldn't mm-hmm. tell the story in exactly the same way I'm telling the story, but my perception of it mm-hmm. and so he would disappear and go out on the gulf on his boat and then i would be the person left in charge on the weekends um and he was not to be found so the, i mean so I, you know it's like anybody else's career i had ups and downs people who uh with whom i got along people with whom i did not get along and you know i persisted <laughs> and she persisted <laughs> Thankfully, an NBC executive visited the Bureau and saw Alelia's need to get out of the little Bureau on the Prairie. Within three months, she was transferred to the Atlanta Bureau, where she was eventually assigned to cover the 1984 Jesse Jackson campaign. And just, you know, that once I covered the, once I covered Jesse Jackson's campaign, I mean, I had covered Jesse Jackson's campaign and then I moved to D.C., but that created a network of people and, rela- and professional relationships that helped. Then I, then I was recruited by ABC. At NBC, she rose to the producer level on World News Tonight with Peter Jennings and loved it, but then she had another rough patch when her executive producer moved up and new executives came in. Then another couple of producers came in, and I did not have the best uh, karma with those two people, so I was kind of in the feeling like I was in the wilderness again, and mm-hmm. fortunately, Robin Sproul, who was the bureau chief in Washington, um, just, you know, the best boss, one of the best bosses I've ever had who really can look at someone and see, you know, his or her talents and figure out where to place them. So I met with Robin because at that point I was so ready to go that mm-hmm. I, I had a, a contract to write a book, you know, the book on Madam Walker, which actually really began when I was at Columbia but I had a contract to write a book, and I and Robin invited me to lunch because she could see I was unhappy. She was not, even though she was bureau chief, she was not my immediate boss. It, I was really reporting to the show in New York. But she knew I was unhappy. She invited me to lunch. We talked, and I said, you know, I'm really, I'm really not happy, and I have this book contract, so I'd like to do a leave of absence. And at lunch, mm-hmm. she said, "Are you? Would you be interested in?" being deputy bureau chief. <laughs> it's <was> like, wow. <laughs> so, 
you know, falling out of the sky. But she, you know, I had I had exhibited leadership in other things. I was at that point I was a trustee at Radcliffe, and I was doing other things because I wasn't getting any satisfaction at work. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was still doing my job, but I but my you know fulfillment was coming from other places. So that was just you know an offer that was so amazing, and I'm you know forever grateful to her for seeing that. So I became mm-hmm. deputy bureau chief, and our agreement was that I would do that for a year and a half, and then I would take um, a leave to go off and write my book, which mm-hmm. I did. And she was very accommodating of that. I wrote my biography on Madam Walker. And mm-hmm. then uh, then I came back and worked for a while. And then I left, left. <laughs> and then I came back as, as um, director of talent development. So I've had this kind of, you know, back and forth between writing about my family and being involved in news. So overall, I had this 30-year career as a network producer with NBC and then a producer and an executive with ABC. Alilia did get a chance to write that book, the idea that had started way back in journalism school at Columbia. The book was about her great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother and the legacy of her family. The story is that when I was at Columbia, Phyllis Garland, who at that point the only and the first black woman tenured faculty person at the journalism school. She had written for Jet and Ebony Johnson Publishing. Her mother had been uh, an editor at the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a very you know, well-known, well-regarded weekly black newspaper in Pittsburgh. And Phil and I, she, Phil was my advisor for my master's paper, and we met and talked about topics that I would, was proposing to her. And I think they were very lame topics. I'm sure they were. (laughs) (laughs) Unimaginative, cliched topics. And at the end of the conversation, Phil said, your name is Alelia. Do you have any connection to Madam C.J. Walker and Alelia Walker? And I suspect she knew the answer to it, but she wanted to let me, you know, say what it was. And I said, yes, that's my family. And she said, well, that's what you're going to write about. And it was just perfect because it's the fall of 1975. Nobody else on that faculty would have had any idea why I have this name with the A apostrophe capital L. Mm-hmm. She knew that it's the it's the you know the classic story of a professor who makes a difference in your life. Mm-hmm. That one conversation with her created so many opportunities for me. Um, that I've been taking advantage of for the last 40 years. <laughs> and, you know, and it was an amazing, you know, sort of a pivotal time for me because my mother was uh, terminally ill with lung cancer. So that mm-hmm. when I went home for Christmas, I was able to interview her, but not a whole lot. And, but if I had not, if Phil had not said that to me in the fall of 1975, my mother would have been gone. I wouldn't have had the, um, you know, the, even the bit of connection that I was able to, to get with that story, and I might not ever have written this book or these books, which is now three and um, you know, and almost four books. Her books aren't the only thing that Columbia gave Oelia. She credits the J School with preparing her for a cutting-edge career as a working journalist. The beauty of the school then and and still, is that you, unlike some schools, you know, most of the many of the professors at 
other journalism schools have PhDs, and so they may be more theoretical. And mm-hmm. Columbia, when I was there, had a lot of people who were really at the top of their game as working journalists. Mm-hmm. And that was very helpful to understanding the in- industry and being able to know what people really expected of you as a working journalist. Beauty for me, I mean, this is long, long ago, mm-hmm. um, but when I was there, that was that mo- that moment when um, television news was tra- making the transition from film on those old 8-millimeter film to mm-hmm. videotape. So we were back and forth learning how to do both film and and videotape. Um, so that was a really different era. Given that Alelia's journalism's career has spanned four decades, I asked her what she thought about the field of journalism then and now. We're in such an interesting time right now, especially with journalism, where it, when I was, I mean, part of what attracted my immediate generation to journalism was Watergate and the civil rights movement and really feeling that there was an opportunity to make a difference, having a mission to having a mission to be to tell the story, you know, of America and of the world through the stories that you were writing as a journalist, really digging deeply and, you know, sometimes just telling us a narrative or sometimes uncovering wrongdoing speaking truth to power, you know, the comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, you know, all of those clichés. But I think my generation of journalists felt that. I think young people now coming into the professional, into the profession, have the same opportunity. We are in a time when journalism is under fire, where there has, I think, during the last few years, through during the election um, there was a lot of really great investigative journalism going on, but there were also many places where mainstream media did not uphold its end of the bargain as the fourth estate mm-hmm. and allowed many untruths to go unchallenged. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is um, a real awareness right now that that the best of us must step up and um, to the degree that we can challenge the untruths, it's really our responsibility as Americans in a democracy and as journalists in the fourth estate. Yeah, there's so much um, impetus, so so much moral pressure or something. It should be moral pressure. It's when people lie to you and they lie to to your face and they try to intimidate you and try to shut you up uh, and try to circumscribe your rights, there's really no choice but to stand up and challenge that. That's a rallying cry from someone who knows journalism better than anyone, and has overcome countless obstacles to have a long and successful career. And she has a final word of advice as she looks back over her career and her life. And I think one of the things that's been the most rewarding for me is the work that I have done uh, both with Columbia and with Harvard and Radcliffe in alumni organizations. And the other part about being at this stage in my life is that I look at my peers and see who's happy, you know, at this stage in life. And there are a variety of things that make people happy. They, you know, but one of the things that that is at least a lesson for me is that when you make it a 
part of who you are to give back, to volunteer, to not always look at everything as what is the dollar sign that's attached to that, am I getting paid? But when you look at the um, opportunities that you have to participate as a volunteer in organizations that are really helping other people, if you have truly given of yourself, truly helped others, truly participated in the larger society, that it is that those relationships are already there for you, and mm-hmm. that you can you you have friendships, you have relationships, you can ask others for help. You don't even have to ask that help will come to you. At least that's my experience. Amelia has always given her talent, vision, and time to each step of her journey, and she has no plans on stopping. At age 65, she'll be publishing her fifth book this year about her family's legacy. She also continues to serve as the chairman of the National Archives Foundation and a trustee at Columbia University. To learn more about Alelia Bundles, her publications, and work, visit www.aleliabundles.com. That's www.aleliabundles.com. Thank you for listening to The Lowdown and this mini-series, The Future Is. This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley and the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.